All right. Ooh, hot mic. I think we'll go ahead and get started. We'll jump in pretty quick here, but first of all, happy Mother's Day for the mothers in the room. Um, after just wrestling my daughter for, it felt like, the last 20 minutes of church, it is a big job as a parent, and particularly today as a mother. So thank you uh, to your mothers. I feel like it's something that our culture is, whether intentionally or unintentionally, devaluing. Um, it's mother and, mother and profession, mother and self-care, mother and a lot. And it's not that those ands aren't appropriate, but I think we're losing focus on just how big of a job motherhood is and how key that is and how, um, how much of a role mothers play with their children. So happy Mother's Day. Um, lots of honor to you and the jobs that you have and the responsibilities you've been given. Uh, with that, we'll go ahead and get started. If anybody can remember, we are studying conversion. We do have plenty of these books available. Um, suggested donation is six and a half if you drop it in the offertory, or I think there's even a, like a money slot over in the bookshelf in the far corner. Uh, but that's completely um, no obligation. If you just need a book, please grab one. I think there's about 10, 15 left up here, so you're not stealing anybody's book. You're not taking it from somebody else who might read it. If you would read it, if you're interested, please grab one. Um, but before we dive in completely, let me go ahead and open us in prayer. So, uh, Dear Heavenly Father, I do want to just ask that you continue to help us focus for another hour. Um, I want to ask that you just let us kind of continue to play with the concept of conversion, not just assuming we understand it, not just assuming that once it's done in the box is checked, that it, our understanding of conversion has no bearing on the rest of our spiritual life. It does, Lord. Help us to see that. Help us to see today um, how it impacts the way we think about how we live in community, how we live as a church. Um, want to Thank you for the mothers in the room today. Thank you uh, for the mothers that you will continue to create and the role and the responsibilities you've given them. Um, let us not forsake the responsibility of being a parent. Let us not devalue it. Let us not look over it. Um, let us invest in our children um, and so they may see you and honor you. Let us pray for our children, um, but then especially, Lord, today for the mothers who are trying to fill that role that you've given them. Uh, once again, Lord, just ask that you calm our minds to avoid our distractions from entering in, and just let us learn from what you would have us teach, what you would teach us in the following hour. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so again, studying conversion, we've gone, this is halfway point. We're actually going to cross the halfway point today. We've had two weeks. We have this week and one more for the total of four weeks. If you can remember, we've been framing up most of our topics in kind of a this-not-that dichotomy. We've had four of them so far, three of them that we hit pretty heavy, one that we very quickly glanced over last week. Um, but we've had new-not-nice, save-not-sincere, disciples-not-decisions, and holy-not-heal. That's the one that we kind of glanced through. We'll, hit, we'll kind of do a quick recap. Um, new-not-nice is where we clarified we need more than just self-betterment. We need more than just a tack on to our life. If we're coming to um, the gospel just to have who we are tweaked and adjust just a little bit, we're probably coming to the conversion and gospel the wrong way. We need to be completely made new. Our hearts are worshiping the wrong thing before conversion. We're aligned to the wrong thing before conversion. And for that to change, we have to be made new. 
But we're incapable of making ourselves new to go from alive to dead, to go from blind to see. So we need to be saved. And that's where we entered into saved, not sincere. Um, We learn that our salvation is from God because of his grace and love. It is not something that we just well up within ourselves. Again, we're described as dead. We're described as blind. God has to act towards us to change that state, to make us alive so that we can respond to him. But that response is required. That decision is required. And the very natural outflow of being saved should be what we covered in Disciples, Not Decisions. We talked about last week, repentance and faith. Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. One can't be true without the other one being there. If you only have one, you probably don't even have that one. Um, Neither faith or repentance is true, and both are present. We had to go really quick last week. We could have gone in a thousand different directions. Uh, What is the full definition of repentance? What is the full definition of faith? How do we grow in it? How does prayer impact it? How does the Holy Spirit get into it? We weren't able to go in all those directions, but what we did try to hammer on is the idea of your heart has been changed. You've been saved by God. Therefore, the only possible response and good response to that is one of faith in that grace, trust in the grace that he saved you, and that trust in that faith leads to repentance and a change of heart. The one that we glanced over, uh, if you are curious, I believe it's chapter 4, uh, Holy, Not Healed, is kind of just the outflow of faith and repentance. If you're putting your faith in grace, if you are repenting and turning from your sin, turning from your false worship, what are you turning to? Ultimately, God, but that plays out in a life lived of holiness. Holiness in the uh, for God's glory. And so I would encourage you to go back and read that chapter. Again, plug for the books up front if you don't have one. Um, but that brings us to where we're going today. And so having laid all this initial groundwork for how conversion comes about and what it initially looks like, we're going to explore more in this week and next week uh, the kind of the impact that that framework of conversion should have on our day-to-day life. So our first and 95% chance the only one we'll get to today <laughs> is distinct, not designed, um, which looks at how conversion impacts the corporate life of the church. This one's tough because just like last week, there's a thousand different topics we're touching on that we're getting close to or that we're going to hint on. Uh, we could go into church membership. We could go into baptism and communion. We could go into church discipline. We could uh, go into church governance. We could go into fill in the blank. Uh, it's, there's a lot of directions we could go in when looking at the role the church plays in our conversion um, and how our view of conversion changes how we interact with the church. Um, but even with all those various paths, we should be able to slow down and hit a couple big ones that will kind of outline uh, the point that we're looking for, that we're trying to be distinct, not designed. For the second part, if we get there, I We'll see. We'll see. It's some and don't sell. So the first one, distinct, not designed, is going to be focused on the church. Some and don't sell is focused on how our view of conversion impacts how we reach to those outside of the church. How do we evangelize? Uh, again, I would just say if we don't get there today, I would encourage you to read it. Uh, we just, by default of time, have to be a little picky and choosy. And I just, I enjoyed the distinct not design chapter. So that's where we put our focus today. Um, and we'll, we'll spend most of our time. So if you are a clock watcher, if we get to about a quarter after, I'm going to try to cram it in. If we get to about 20 after, we might just call a day and, and let you guys get to a Mother's Day brunch a little early. All right. 
With that, let's go ahead and start distinct, not designed. I have to change my first illustration for this section. When I was teaching youth, um, it was very easy to go to my non-existent style choices when I was in high school um, to try to relate to youth. That's very hard to do if you haven't done it recently. Um, And just talking about how for youth... Where you, what you dress, where you get your clothes, what you're trying, what vibe you're trying to put off is is very much a way for you to communicate what identity you're trying to adhere to, what you're trying to define yourself as, what groups you're trying to belong to. Uh, For adults, though, I don't think, at least I I would hope not, that our clothes maybe play a little less of a role in how we view each other, but we have plenty of other things that we start segregating ourselves by. What are your jobs? What are your careers? What are your hobbies? What are your interests? What are your parenting styles? What are your fill-in-the-blank? All of these choices that we make, um, some of them more moral, some of them just preference, um, still serve the same purpose. We are trying to portray ourselves um, to a certain segment, to a certain group, to a certain style. Blue collar, white versus white collar, sport enthused versus outdoor living, disciplinarians versus gentle parroting, and so on we could go. And these aren't even necessarily one versus the other, but they're definitely ways that we find people that think like us and act like us and kind of try to live out their life similar to how we do. Um, I'm a bit of a mutt because I work in an office job, but yet I have a garage full of tools and do almost everything in my house myself, yet I have a library at my house, and it's right next to my gaming PC that I spend too much time on sometimes. So, like, I don't know which category I'm trying to fit into with all of that, but we all have things that we, in our life that we cling to that we kind of describe or use to identify ourselves by. Um, Again, for youth, clothing, brand, music, cars, activities, that's kind of where youth goes. For us, it's uh, jobs, careers, uh, hobbies, type of vacations. Are you an ocean person? Are you a beach resort person? Are you a camping in the woods person? All these things. You get the idea. Um, but our world seems to be driven off of grouping people into these likenesses and putting us into these categories. And oftentimes, even trying to shape which categories we are considered as ideal. We claim we want individualism, and we claim we want freedom of choice, yet we very quickly notice when people break these norms. Like, when we think, when I think I have somebody pegged, and they all of a sudden just take a right turn that goes against the stereotype, you're taken aback. It it surprises you. Even my profession, I'm I'm a product manager, so I work for a company where my job is figuring out, you know, who are our customers? What are their needs? What are their, uh, what's broken for them? What can we fix? I don't blindly choose a piece of software to go build. I don't blindly choose a product to go build. I go and I identify a group. I identify a type of people. Um, I can't be all things to all people. I don't need to be. If I simply can identify a type, there's enough return on investment for me to go solve their problems. I'm Again, I'm looking to identify a group. But what happens, all this to say, what happens when the church starts to think this way? As a church, we don't deny, nor would we ever want to deny individualism's interests, different hobbies, different perspectives, different likes and dislikes. We wouldn't wouldn't want to do away with that. But what happens when we segment the body of Christ the way a marketing firm does, or the way a business does, or the way society does? What happens when we have the college church, the boomers church, the theology church, the seeker-friendly church, the hip church, the they-only-sing-hymns church? What happens when this is how we divide the body of Christ? In this first section, we're going to put forward that that is not how the body of Christ 
the church is supposed to organize itself. We're going to start with two foundational points, um, that we are called to be a distinct community. So one, we are called to be a community. Um, and two, the calling of that community, the unifying thing behind that community, is to be holy. The third and final point, though, is, and how we'll try to tie this all back, is how being a distinct and holy community calls us to self-sacrificing love within that community. Um, and around the one thing that matters most, our belief in Christ, our belief in the gospel. So starting out with the first one, called to a distinct community. We touched on this in Save Not Sincere. Uh, that was two weeks ago now. Um, this idea that we are saved to a specific people group. We're, just, we're saved to a specific people. While your salvation um, and your conversion is very personal, me being saved by Christ, uh, whether I'm a follower of him or not, whether I'm going to heaven or hell not, is very personal to me. Um, it is very distinct and individual, individualized, my experience of how that came about. Yet, it is not only personal. It is, I wouldn't even say it's primarily personal. You have been called to a God's people, a distinct group that God has set apart. From the Garden of Eden to Noah's Ark to God's people in Egypt, specific people, to Israel, to the uh, global church of the New Covenant, those who belong to the New Covenant, God has continually, through the Bible, been setting apart a people, a distinct people, his people. But, how does Peter refer to this group of people? First uh, Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. But where I wanted to start is in verse 11. What are, we, what are we referred to here? If you look, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. So we're a group of people. We're a distinct group of people, but we're a group of people that are not home yet. We're a group of people that's living as sojourners and exiles in our current world. Unfortunately, we don't often heed this description when thinking about our church structure. And I'm not talking about we as in First E Free, just we as maybe the broader American church. Um, I'll probably try not to be too pointed at, um, and I think we do a pretty good job across a lot of these. But when we think of the American church, uh, we try to be as similar to the world as possible, it seems like, uh, and show them that, hey, we're really not that different. We're really not expecting you to move that far. We're getting close to that nice, not new line instead of new, not nice. Yet God calls us to be different, and we'll get to that, we'll get to how in a moment, but when we think we know better, and we will make God more appealing, if we just conform a little bit more to how the world does things. After all, we'd hate to be seen as odd or out of step with society. But Paul has a very different view of it, and therefore God has a very different view of it through the Bible. 2 Corinthians, this is a longer passage, so if you'd like to follow along, go for it. 2 Corinthians 6. We're going to be in verse 14, 2 Corinthians 6, 14. But Paul is going to draw a much harder line than I think we even tend to acknowledge today in a Bible-believing church. 2 Corinthians 6, 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has a temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. 
as God said, I will make my dwelling among them and they and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, that I then I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. While there's an Old Testament quote in here, this isn't the Old Testament, this is New Covenant. There's a very clear, from Paul at least, difference between how believers think about things and how unbelievers pursue and think about things. Even when we find ourselves somewhat walking in the same direction as non-believers, we, we may be aligned on some political directions. We may be aligned in academics. We might be aligned with our favorite sports team or in business, what we're trying to achieve, achieve or in any area of life. But we still need to remind ourselves there's, very, there's still a very core difference than how we're supposed to think about things than how unbelievers think about things. There's a different motive. There's a different heart worship. There's a different purpose that we are going about than unbelievers. What is it? So what is it that makes the community of God's people so different? And this moves us to the second point of this section. The community of God's people are called to be holy. Holy and bring all glory to God. This is our main calling. This is what feeds everything we do. We don't just go and pursue business for the business sake. We don't just go and pursue politics for politics sake. Uh, we don't even just pursue moralism for moralism's sake. We are pursuing these things out of a desire to be holy and to be more like Christ. Why? Going back to last week, for uh, the faith and uh, repentance drives us towards a life pursuing holiness and honoring God. Let's turn to 1 Peter 1. We'll actually be here for a couple minutes here. So 1 Peter 1, we're going to look at essentially one passage, but I skipped a couple verses in the middle. Uh, 1 Peter 1, verse 13. 1 Peter 1, verse 13. And we'll go 13 through 16 to start. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. But then what is given as the reason for this calling? Let's skip to verse 18 and 19. The reason, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, that like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So let me rearrange these verses a little bit for us, and we'll see that they play into the theme we've had of the last few weeks. So verse 18, let's start there. Knowing that you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ. What are we talking about there? We're talking about grace. We're talking about God covering your sins. So then we go to verse 13. Set your hope, set your faith fully on the grace. Now we're to faith. So we were saved by grace. Now we're putting our faith, set your hope fully on the grace in verse 13. Moving to verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. What does that sound like? Repentance. We're turning from our former sins, from our former ignorance, from our former false worship. In verse 15, the outpouring then. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. We're now on my pet, my, my hobby horse, my circle. We're back to God has shown you grace. He has saved you. He has made you alive. Therefore, you put faith in that and you repent of your sins because you have now recognized God as good Lord. 
But when you recognize God as good Lord, you recognize yourself as not, and you see the need for repentance. But that repentance isn't stemmed from legalism. It's stemming from a love of the one who saved you first. And so you pursue him, and your heart changes, and you pursue holiness. But in that pursuit of holiness, you just learn more and more how dependent you are on that grace. It doesn't lead you to more and more standing on your own two feet. It leads you to more and more understanding of how much you can't stand on your own two feet. So then you just fall more and more in love with the grace, which leads to faith and repentance, which leads to further pursuing. And we're in this circle of growth that we talked about last week. And we see it clearly played out for us again in 1 Peter. We're called through all of this to live a life of holiness. But now the key point, how is this holiness represented in community? Enter the local church. Enter our church for our own personal examples. The local church is how most of us experience the tangible body of Christ and where we gather and worship and learn about whom we follow and the one who we love. The problem is we go through that circle that I just described and we nod our heads. We go, yep, I I get that. Uh, At least we get most of it. We, We try to understand most of it. We try to live that way. But we take that and we make it mine or we make it your own. And you just apply that to your own little, I don't want to be that demeaning, but we apply it to our own life and we keep it in just the bubble of your own life. But that's not how we're called. We're called to be part of this people. So what does it actually look like to live through this circle of conversion in community? We do that not just week to week, but day to day with our local church and those that we are walking through this life of as believers with. This is, again, where I hinted that we could go on many different tangents, uh, but we're going to try to dial it in a little bit. Um, we could go, again, leadership, governance, elders, deacons, lay people, membership, communion, baptism, teaching, disciplining, exhorting, sending. Like, we could go through the list of the roles of the church. Um, but we're going to dial in on four. Did I have four or three? Three or four. We'll hit them. First, I think the main thing that we are to teach, and the, the primary, the main purpose of the church, sorry, let me get my thoughts together here, is to teach, to teach the word. You don't have to turn there. I got a couple references coming up, and they'll probably be a little quick, so I'll probably not pause for you to turn to each, but we'll start with Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one, one another in all wisdom, singing psalms of and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So what is one of the main ways that we follow and pursue holiness within the church? We go to it as a source of our teaching, to be taught and to teach. What we do on Sundays and what we do on other organized church events is where we set our foundation for what we believe. To follow, to believe something, you have to know something. You have to understand what is being taught in the Word. It has to work itself out. That knowledge has to work itself out in action. But the only way you can get to action is first through right knowledge and right understanding. And so we are to teach the word. But notice it's not just dry teaching. Teaching and admonishing another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It's with joy. It's with love. It's not a dry. It is a, I want to know the Lord I love. I want to sing about the Lord that I love. I want to praise God. And I, one of the ways I do that is I want to get to know him more. So one of the first things the church does for us is teaches us. I hesitate to ask this question because I don't want to turn it too much into a formula, but what happens when you miss church for a few weeks? What happens when you've been on vacation or there's a business trip or you've been sick and all of a sudden you're not being fed regularly? You notice. Again, I hate to turn it into the equation of attend church and you're good, but attend church and you're fed, you're, you're, you're living in community, you're being taught, you're being refocused. Uh, 
Come to church. Prioritize church. Not legalistically, but because you need to be in communion with those who can teach you about the one that you love. Next step, though, and this is one that we do make a little too formulaic sometimes, is to practice the sacraments, particularly under the leadership of the elders. What are the sacraments? We're simply talking about baptism and communion. Again, I'm touching on something that is four to eight weeks on and of itself. We're going to breeze through it. Bear with me. I just, my perfectionist just can't let me not mention it. I hate having to go this fast. Uh, but we're at least going to touch on it. Baptism is a command of, from God as an outward act that proclaims our inward washing and transformation and entrance into God's people. We celebrate together when someone is converted or at least declares their conversion publicly before us. But more specifically, that's usually happening in the home local church. That's someone that, yes, we're a big church, but that's someone that you will probably be seeing or hopefully will be seeing week to week, maybe multiple times a week, for years and years to come. We should be excited about those that enter into God's people. Yes, it is their personal testimony. Yes, it is how God saved them. But it is also their entrance into a time where the church will help them and support them on their walk. Child dedication is very similar to this as well. Um, There's differences between baptism and child dedication, but I think child dedication hits differently when it's your child. When you realize that your child is now has a commitment from your body of believers that they're going to grow up in with years to come of people teaching and investing. My daughter is downstairs being taught. My, they will go, she'll go to Awana, most likely, Lord willing. Uh, she'll be growing up in this church probably until she's 18, unless we are moved. <laughs> like, and there's a commitment from the church to help in that growth. Baptism, similarly, is an entrance into God's people. It is an entrance into that structure and into that community. The elders of the church have a responsibility, though, to guard that. Baptism is sacred. They have a responsibility to meet with, talk with, and examine those that wish to be baptized and enter into both the global church, but also very specifically our local church. The church should not be loose with those that allows to um, into the baptism. Uh, elders, then, uh, they are trying to protect us from the wolves, from false sheep, who minimally make a mockery of God and his people, but at worst seek to harm God's people. They are not the final authority on that person's salvation, so they are not necessarily the final sayers of conversion or not. But they do protect, and they do guard, and they have been charged with looking for evidence of faith, faith and repentance, or evidence to the contrary, with all prayer and discernment and wisdom. When we think of conversion merely as a personal decision and a personal walk, that kind of church oversight, we kind of recoil at that. We're kind of like, who is the church to do that? Well, the church is your accountability. The church is your teacher. The church is your guide. And the elders are charged to be the shepherds of that flock. And therefore, they have a responsibility to protect the flock and to protect those things that are sacred. But that's not the only one. We then move forward to communion, where we come regularly, week over week, month after month, and we recall the gospel. We recall our conversion. We recall what God has called us to. And then we look for that faith and repentance that we talked about last week. Are we living in a way that is aligned to faith and repentance? Is that natural breathing of faith and repentance actually occurring, or are we needing on life support and we need support? This hints at another role of the church uh, in the pursuit of holiness, which is church discipline. When someone professes with their lips to be a follower of Christ— to be a member of our local church, but clearly demonstrates that they are not currently walking in a manner consistent or even blatantly denying Christ, it is the role of the church through friends and elders to rebuke that person and to try to bring that person to repentance. 
Again, several verses here, but I think, I think it's important to not have these words just be my own and recapping. So Matthew 18, 15 to 17. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained a brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two along, others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, let him, to be, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And we see this final step being lived out in a very real way in the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians 5, uh, verse 11. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 11. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. So he, he bears the name of brother. He's claiming to be a Christian. He has been part of your body. But if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is, not, is it not those inside the church who you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Why? What does this do? One, it goes back to protecting the church. It goes back to protecting not just the reputation, but those that are in the church, those that are trying to follow Christ. But it also is actually to, for the benefit of the one being disciplined. Second Thessalonians 3 is a very similar um, to, the uh, to the Corinthians example. Second Thessalonians 3, 14 to 15. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person. Have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. But verse 15, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So while we are not to infirm the one that's acting in unrepentant sin, uh, and we are not to relate to them as we would a believer. We're not supposed to walk up and act like nothing is out of place. Um, the point, though, is to still try to bring that person back to conversion, uh, back to repentance. I apologize. I started to say conversion, and that's not what I intended. It turned the person back to repentance. All right, but all those, for their final one, what are we to do for those that do repent, for those that have been disciplined and turned back, or for those that are simply never stray, for those that are simply coming and trying to live the life of a Christian and pursuing holiness. The church is to exhort and encourage. Hebrews 10, 24. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting meeting together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you say, see the day drawing near. Encourage one another. Build each other up. That's not just internalizing your salvation. That's reaching out to those that are struggling beside you. It's reaching out to the mothers who are struggling on how to be a good Christian mom when they're not trying to go absolutely crazy on the child who's disobeying for 30 minutes straight or an hour straight or two hours straight. It's encouraging uh, the friend who is looking for a job and hasn't gotten one. It's encouraging to the one that is fighting sin faithfully and trying to overcome sin in their life. You can't do that on your own. It, I don't know if it's just a Midwestern thing, but it's definitely, it's definitely more of a Midwestern thing, but we, we really like self-starting. We really like self-independence. And maybe everybody does. Maybe that's a little too narrow to say it's a Midwestern thing, but I definitely feel it here where it's just we, we want to be able to do things on our own. And if we can't do things on our own, there's something wrong with us. Like, if I can't figure out how to self-motivate, how to self-start, how to exercise daily on my own, if I need someone to have, hold me accountable, if I need someone to, you know, hold me to a goal— then I, there must be something wrong with me. I must be failing. I must not be that serious about the goal. I can align to that. I can, I can understand that. I definitely probably berate myself that way more than I should. But 
there's a very real community that we're called to live in. You are called to have accountability. You are called to have a community around you that encourages you. You are called to encourage others. You're not called to walk it alone. You need those reminders. It is okay to take those reminders. It is okay to be challenged by your brothers and sisters in Christ. And it is okay to encourage. So it's the last one we hit on, and that's to exhort and encourage one another. But I think it's one we minimize. We need to be encouraging of each other. We need to be exhorting of one another. Notice in all of this, though, the church isn't just being distinct just to be distinct. We're not just banishing cards because it's too close to gambling. We're not just not going to certain movies. We're not just not doing this or not doing that, or, you know, maybe dancing could lead to something worse. We shouldn't dance. We're not, we're not just drawing arbitrary lines and arbitrary moralism within the church. We are trying to be careful. We do believe that God has called us to holy, so we live holy, but that's a high enough bar on its own. We don't need to add to it. Um, so be careful that when you hear the church is to be distinct, we're not just to be distinct just to make ourselves different, just to make ourselves awkward. We're to be distinct based on the one that we have love for and the holiness he's called us to. But how does all of this tie back to where we started? How does communal, uh, communal strategy for holiness, how does these, these four points we've been talking about in the pursuit of holiness push against the segmented church that is divided by worldly categories? Because the only way those four things happen and the other things that we, had to, that we weren't able to touch on is within an extremely self-sacrificing love of the local church. It doesn't just happen. It's not natural. It, it's not something that we just go and think will happen like we do. If, if, you have, if you share a sports team, if you share, I'm a Vikings fan, so if I found someone who's a Vikings fan in here, I could go start a conversation with you and we'd probably be good for 15 to 20 minutes, at least. At least. That's a very natural. That's very normal. Doing that within the church, doing that with someone who you may not share those, those base instinct, uh, interests with, that's a little different. But how do you take encouragement for someone who does not show you that kind of love and effort? How do you take correction from someone who does not show love and does not show that investment? How do you take teaching from someone who does not love? And how is restoration and forgiveness after a wrong achieved without that kind of love? The love is deeper than that simply of shared interests. Jesus says in Matthew 5, verses 46, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? The love of the church is to be deeper because we have a shared identity in Christ. And this is where we'll turn to John 13. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Why? Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. We need to understand that we have more in common and more unity with a person that is completely opposite in interest, but is a Christian, than we do with the person who seems to be just like us, but is an unbeliever. It isn't easy. It feels completely contrary to almost every other relationship advice the world gives us. But that is the actual point. Lawrence says, this, Lawrence is the one who wrote the book uh, that we're using as a guide. We testify to Jesus in his good news when our community of love cuts across the lines of growth the world expects, a community that can be explained only by the gospel that changes lives. In other words, what, what demonstrates the power of God's salvation more? The bringing of like people together or the unifying of completely different people but those who are pursuing the same purpose. 
So, yeah, enjoy your hobbies and interests with people who enjoy them, too. You'll find people in the church that enjoy your same interests. Go fishing, go skiing, uh, go to a sporting event, uh, meet at a mother's group, and so on, with fellow believers who enjoy those things or who are in those same areas of life. But also understand that behind all those things, the Christian life is primarily about glorifying God and becoming more like him, and that cuts across all boundaries. And so this is where I'm going to try to land this section, and it may be a bit strong, but I don't think it's too strong. And that's simply just a little bit of self-reflection. Let me ask, who do you feel more akin to? Your believing friends, who you share the same interest, or your fellow believers? It can be overstated. We can take that too far. I'm not saying don't have friends who aren't believers, but who do you feel more akin to? Who do you feel more unity with? And maybe to direct you to the next question, if you can nobly admit you struggle with your love for fellow believers, I certainly do. Um, why? Follow it up. Why? And I would suggest the answer to that question isn't just try harder. It isn't just volunteer more. It's not just be more patient. It's not just intentionally go have that awkward conversation that you don't know how to have with someone who doesn't have any shared interests. It's, it's not quite that simple. I think if I were to try to cut more to the root of it, I think it's often because we do not value our salvation and ultimately we do not value God. It's not primarily an issue between you and the person you're trying to have a relationship with in the church. I think it's primarily an issue with your relationship with God. I think a lot of the flakiness in our church relationships is actually because there's a lot of flakiness in our faith. Because if we valued God and what he's done for us properly, nothing would be more important to us than our pursuit of holiness. That should be the most important thing in your life is pursuit of God. Pursuit of holiness, pursuit of God, pursuit of his glory. We can kind of use those as synonyms. synonyms. But our life primarily as Christians is about following after God. So if that's what your primary directive in life is, if that's what is centering your life, who should you feel most in unity with? Others that are doing the same thing, regardless of their interests, regardless of the areas in life that they're at and the time of life that they're at, regardless of maybe how different they appear to you, they're going where you're going. Why does a team feel unified? Because they're working together to pursue the same goal. Why does the church then feel ununified at times? Because we're all pursuing our own version of nice instead of jointly pursuing holiness and God's glory that changes your life. So, when we talk about the importance of the church and we talk about the role of the church uh, in conversion and how, how we think about conversion changes and affects how we think about our role in the church, it's because conversion gives us a new worship. It gives us a new heart. It gives us a new direction. And therefore, we should be closely aligned to those that are also going in the same direction. Unfortunately, I don't feel like we have a lot of good examples of this. It's hard because, I, you know, it's when I am trying to get better as a product manager, what do I look to? Other product managers that I have a ton of respect for that are really good at what I do. That's who I go try to model after. That's who I go try to learn from. Unfortunately, I don't think we have a lot of those amazing examples on, uh, today of how a church should be unified all the time. Um, but I would challenge you then, to figure it out. Go play with it. Go experiment. Try to have those awkward conversations. Try to figure out what it looks like to live in holiness together because it is pretty amazing when we get it right. 
um, when God does show his grace and gives us the unity. When VBS unifies both dads and moms to come and volunteer together to minister to our children, that's pretty special. Um, When music on Sunday morning joins us in our worship, it's pretty special. When we care for the elderly, um, specifically the elderly in our own church as a group, it's pretty awesome and pretty special. So while I am being a little bit dour and a little bit pessimistic, I just want to say that there's also still a lot of good ways that we are trying to do this. So I'd say keep trying. Keep trying within our own church, specifically at First Day Free, to figure out ways to live out a pursuit of holiness together as the church. I've got between 10 and 15 minutes, so I'm going to do it. But <laughs> let's pause. Any questions on this first section? Because it is a bit of a context switch. We're going to kind of pause and move on to some and don't sell. Um, but any questions on this first set part? Because we can definitely discuss here for 15 minutes if that serves us better. Okay, it is going to be fast. I tried really hard to slow down my pace, but it might fail me here. So, summon, don't sell. Similar to how we tried to tailor our church and lure in specific people by catering to... Similar to how we try... Let me see, this is where we're going to screw up. Slow down. Similar to how in Nice Not New, we try to just tack on Christian aspects to ourselves to make us um, slightly more improved, slightly better, slightly more sanctified, um, and we miss the idea of actually needing to be made new, we can do the same thing in our gospel presentation. We, te- we attempt to tailor our gospel presentation to um, a specific felt need. We, we try to do it to a specific improvement that we think another person needs to experience, and we actually completely bypass just the base place where we're at of unsaved and that someone needs to be saved and, and God needs to save that person. But we think, if I can just figure out what this person thinks they need fixed, if I can just offer them up a solution, they're more likely to bite. And so we change the gospel message. So what is the actual gospel message? What is the message of conversion that we're supposed to be teaching? And how should we do it? Before we go there, let me first ask, what is the result of faithful evangelism? What do you think faithful evangelism, the outcome, what do you think the outcome of faithful evangelism is? Just pause on that for a second. It's simply that you have spoken the message, um, not that a convert was made. Now, we, we pray for it. We desire for converts to be made. We desire to welcome new people into the body of Christ that we just spoke about. But faithful evangelism is simply that you've spoken God's message. It's simply that you've been truthfully and faithfully shared the gospel. So first, we'll go through four points here again, because he likes sets of four. But we'll start with, first, we need to communicate plainly. Look at 2 Corinthians 4, verse 2. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. We do not try to manipulate. We don't try to pull a bait and switch. We don't lure people in and then spin it at the end. As soon as we do that, we're no longer presenting the gospel. I like how Lawrence puts it. Like, the gospel has definite content. Successful evangelism for Paul, therefore, is an open statement of truth, or as NIV puts it, setting forth the truth plainly. So communicating plainly, the gospel itself, there's a start, there's a middle, there's an end. There's pieces of the gospel message that have to be present for it to be called the gospel message. So we need to communicate that message plainly. Second, though, we need to communicate honestly. It's very 
related to communicating plainly, but we need to communicate the gospel honestly. Sometimes we don't necessarily falsely communicate or leave something or, or intentionally do something underhanded, but we might say certain parts more quietly. We might shy away from certain parts of that gospel message. We'll be quick to say that Jesus loves you and that Jesus can make you new, but we say the implied part of you are fallen in the need of a Savior and sinful very quietly, if at all. We skip that we're separated from God because of our false worship, sin, and rebellion. So we need to create, uh, communicate honestly and openly. We see this in Mark 8, 34 to 38. Uh, Mark 8, 34 to 38. Jesus, this is Jesus' words, communicating very plainly. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up the cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For who, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in glory of his Father and with the holy angels. That's not really sugar-coated. Deny yourself. Die to yourself. Pick up your cross. Follow me. Whoever saves his life will lose it. Jesus spoke very honestly about the cost and the message of the gospel. Third, and I think this is a good one for us, is we need to communicate urgently. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.20 Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Paul implores. He urges. He, he pushes for that response. He pushes for a decision. Yes, we've attributed the fact that it is God who saves. Yes, we have talked about God's saving work needing to happen in you, but there's still a push for a decision. Because that's all we know as humans. We don't see the other piece. He urges a response to Christ. This is far from, so what do you think after a gospel message? It's far from, um, well, let me know if you want to talk about that next week. It's, it's a push. It's an urgency. It's a, there is a response called to the message of the gospel. Fourth and finally, uh, in closing, we communicate confidently. Um, last scripture for today. 2 Corinthians 4, 5 through 7. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let the light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Paul does not look at himself as the one who gives power to his message. This goes back to what is the result of faithful evangelism. It's delivering the message. But Paul does not look for himself. He refers to himself as a simple jar of clay. Um, and that seems absurd if he would claim that um, as Paul, except for that he knows his place, and he knows the power of the gospel comes from God. It comes from the one who said, let there be light. It comes from the creator of the world. But that's also a very reason of our confidence to share, because it's not our power. It's not about us. It's not about how I can try to get through a 50-minute lesson and clearly communicate <laughs> to you guys. It is about the power of God who is faithful to his message. It's still a big responsibility. It still takes boldness, as Terry referred to this morning. It still takes um, a confidence and a faith in the message. You have to believe it, um, but you're relieved of the responsibility of the outcome because your outcome is just being faithful to what Christ has called you to.
All right. That leaves us about five minutes. I told you that last section would be fast. Any questions before I wrap us up with one last verse I want to go back to? Think of the balance between we know that if we present the gospel in a truthful, honest way, that we're being faithful. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time, we're also called to make disciples, which engages you more than just the presentation. I love it. But that next additional step which is really clear the calling of God. I. I love that you went there. And, I mean, again, the purpose of the church and doing this in community. Um, tying our gospel and our evangelism to then our commitment to the church. Because if you are sharing the gospel, if you are evangelizing, and God grants the fruit of that evangelism, you now have entered someone into the body of Christ, and now we have a responsibility. <laughs> now we have a brotherhood and a sisterhood and a family to care for. Um, no, I love it. It's a great point. Any other thoughts? Okay, I want to go back to uh, my first point because I just remembered that um, Terry hit it perfectly in his sermon. He went to 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 11. And I just kind of want to leave you guys with this as we close. 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father, and at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So grow in love. Increase in love for each other. Increase in love for those outside the church that we do evangelize for. Why? So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father, for our King, for the one we love. All right, guys. One more week. Um, it's another full one, but I'm, I'm excited to wrap things up next week and hit one more topic. Again, books up front. If you need a book, please grab one. We'll be in the last two chapters next week. Thanks, everybody.